0: Please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. Morgan Housel is a partner at the Collaborative Fund. Previously, he was a columnist at the Wall Street Journal and the Motley Fool. He is a two-time winner of the Best in Business Award from the Society of American Business Editors and Writers, the New York Times-Sydney Award and a two-time finalist for the Jared Loeb Award for Distinguished Business Writing. Basically, Morgan is a big deal. And while I don't know about Kate, I think Morgan is one of, if not the best investment writers in the world. You've probably heard either Kate or I say things like, 99% of long-term investing is doing nothing. The other 1% changes your life. That was a title of a blog that Morgan wrote. Naturally, Kate and I are stoked to have Morgan on the show and talk about his new book, The Psychology of Money. I've listened to the book on Audible. Side note, if you're new to Audible, you may be able to get two books for free, but more recently, I bought Morgan's book and I've been flicking back to the parts of it that I found most interesting and most inspiring. Kate and I really hope you enjoy this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast. Let's get into the episode. Kate, welcome to this very special episode of the Australian Finance Podcast.
1: It's good to be back, Owen, for a brand new year.
0: Yes, it is indeed. Today we're talking to Morgan Houseall. I feel like Morgan's name is brought up probably more often than any other on the show. And many of our listeners would be familiar with Morgan's work. But yeah, and Morgan, without trying to butcher an, an intro to you, uh, you've got a new book out, currently working at the Collaborative Fund, um, formerly of the Motley Full. Prolific writer, uh, I'm so grateful that you've put your thoughts into a book and uh, that you've taken the time out to join us today. So welcome. Thanks so much for having me. I'm, it's it's an honor to to be here. I love speaking with
2: investors from other countries, so it's really fun to get to do this.
0: Wonderful. Yeah, Morgan. Why don't we just start at the top? You've got the new book, The Psychology of Money. Why did you decide to write it? Why Why a book? You know, blogs and articles for so long.
2: You know what's interesting is I've been a full time financial writer for 13 years now. And I just wrote the first book. So I actually did not feel any pressure to write a book. And people would ask me eight years ago, when are you going to write a book? And I just didn't feel the need, any pressure. And I was kind of wrong about the reason why. My answer, if you'd asked me eight years ago, why why haven't I written a book? My answer was, I write a blog every week. Who cares if I put it in between two pieces of cardboard? What difference does it make? I'm writing a bunch. Like what's, What's the difference? And I actually realized after I published the book that there's a huge difference. I think a lot of it is this. If you write a blog online, because it's free and because it's online where people have so many other distractions, there's Twitter sitting next to you, there's news sitting next to you, they're just not gonna They're going to invest that much energy into reading that blog. They might read it, they might read a couple sentences and move on to something else. But if they pay $20 for a book and they have a physical book to hold, they're gonna invest a lot more attention into that book. They're gonna pay more attention and it feels like a bigger deal to them, even if it's the exact same words that are online in the blog. So I think that it's just like a different format in a book that makes people take it much more seriously. And it's also good too, because in a blog... Uh, Since people don't have a lot of patience and attention, blogs have to be short just to pander to people's short attention spans. Whereas a book, you kind of have a little bit more freedom as a writer to expand a little bit because your readers have more attention. It's like let's go deeper on this. Let's tell a longer story. Let me tell you all the nuance of this in a way that was really fun to put together. Uh, so I, you know, I, I didn't have any pressure to write a book for years, but now that I did it, I finally realized like, oh, that's why. I did it. But I, I'm 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 kind of glad that I waited until I had lots of different stories and anecdotes built up over the years to put this book mm-hmm. together into.
1: Yeah, even like um, just with my sister, I've been trying to send her different articles and blogs to read about personal finance topics. And I mean, she's busy; she's never read one. But when I actually each year uh, under the Christmas tree, I give her a personal finance book. It was yours this year. I, I actually awesome. see that sometimes she reads them. The bookmark slowly moves through the book, so I think good, it's a good. much good easier that. way to help someone else learn about difficult topics like personal finance when they're harder to talk about. Is actually being able to give them a book. It's quite different than sending sending them a, a link to an article, isn't it? It's much different. also too, what I wanted to do with this book.
2: I try to do this with my normal blog writing as well, is I want to write something that a professional hedge fund manager would learn, would gain some insight from, but that a complete novice who has no financial background would understand. I want both yeah. those things to be true at the same time, which is not a, it's not an easy balance to hit, but I think if you can take a complicated financial topic, an important financial topic and explain it, through the lens of a story, sometimes a story that's from a completely different field that people understand, can wrap their heads around, can empathize with, Mm. um, that hopefully you can kind of strike that balance sometime. So it was difficult when I was talking with the publisher before I wrote this book, and they asked the standard question, who is your audience? Who are you writing this book for? And I said, I know this is the wrong answer, but everyone. And I I don't mean that as a cop-out. I know that's the cop-out answer, like no one wants to hear that answer, but I really wanted to write a book that anyone of any financial sophistication would, would will understand and benefit from?
0: How do you go about doing that, Morgan? Because that is such a you know valuable skill, and obviously you're a fantastic writer. But for us aspiring writers, what what tips would you have? I think there's two there's two things. One is well, I actually there, there's several things here.
2: One is for all the complicated financial topics, whatever it is, whether it's you know a complicated formula, a complicated theory, there's usually some really simple. Takeaway from it that you can distill down into a couple sentences. So it's taking something complex and just saying, like, what's the, like, how can I really simplify this into its most essential parts? And then it is, okay, let's take those essential parts and explain them through a story. Now, what's the story going to be? I don't want the story to be a finance story, I don't want it to be an investing story because that's boring. You're, to, you're not going to gain people's attention if it's just a book of formulas and charts and whatnot, or even if it's a book of stories about hedge fund managers. Uh, your sister, Kate, probably would not enjoy that that much no. if she doesn't have a financial background. So if you can explain the essence of those financial topics through the lens of something totally different. And in the book, I tell stories about the histories of ice ages and syphilis treatments and all these things like World like World War II battles that have nothing to do with investing, but they all kind of explain a part of human behavior that is very relevant to investing. Part of this, I think, is this observation that investing is not the study of finance. That's just like a small part of what investing is. What investing really is, is a study of how people make decisions with money. It's, and since it's this field of behavior, it's like studying how people think and make decisions around fear and greed and opportunity and scarcity. That's what investing is. And because that's what it is, you can learn a lot about investing through the lens of other fields, like biology and sociology and psychology and politics. These things have nothing to do with investing, but they teach you about how people think about greed and fear and and scarcity. So once you realize that, then you realize that you can think about investing, learn about investing through all kinds of different fields. And I just think it's a lot more exciting than if you you break away from viewing investing through the, the narrow lens of finance and you really broaden your horizons and say, I just want to figure out how people think. I want to figure out what people are thinking when they make their investment decisions and then write a story around that. I think that's how I've how I've tried to go about writing.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think the book definitely comes across that way. And I do enjoy those anecdotes because they give you a way to talk about finances with people in your community as well uh, through stories because it sort of teaches you that, oh, just talking to your neighbor about compound interest, that's pretty boring. But if you can add a story to it, well, suddenly they're a bit more interested, aren't they?
2: And it's not only more interesting, but you understand it better. Like for Mm -hmm. most people, even if you are a financial professional, if you just give them a formula or a chart or some data, the part of your brain that understands that is the different part of your brain than the storytelling part of your brain. That's really, if you can tell a story around it, you all of a sudden understand the new one. You can empathize with it personally. And it's not just a raw, lifeless piece of data. You all of a sudden say, I understand like the nuance behind, like it it clicks a lot better. And more importantly, I think you're much more likely to remember it. You know, we we all know back in high school math class, the night before a test, we would memorize the formula. You take the test and then you forget it as soon as a test is over. Mm -hmm. Like if you're just trying to memorize data and formulas, it's not easy to do that. But if you tell a good story, like a story that you learned back in high school, you might still remember every detail of it today. Stories are much easier to remember. So I think in terms of just making these financial concepts a permanent part of how you think requires a story rather than just a piece of data that you're going to forget as soon as you read it.
0: Morgan, sometimes we tell ourselves stories that probably lead us astray a bit though, right? Like the stories that we tell ourselves in our own heads about money. I, I imagine, and I follow the Farnham Street blog, as no doubt you do. Yep. Multidisciplinary learning, wider reading. Is that something that's incorporated into your daily routine?
2: That's it. I, I almost never read... Finance books, economic books, very very rarely. I read the Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg and you know financial news, but the huge majority of my reading is stuff that has nothing to do with investing. Mm. I'm reading a book right now on uh, on the ecology of trees. Just, it just has nothing to do with anything. But and I'm just reading that because I think it's interesting. And, mm. it, and like I'm not explicitly reading that to become a better investor, but I think if you go about your life. Just with the widest funnel that you can for learning, and I just want to learn about all kinds of different things. Over time, you're going to be a better thinker, and you're going to, have to be able to think about risk and opportunity and whatnot in a different way than if you were just focusing on finance. So, yeah, the, the majority of my reading has nothing to do with investing, but as as the book shows, like there's a lot of stories in there that I think you can very easily tie back into investing. I mean, here's one example from this book on trees that I'm that I'm reading. I'll I'll, I'll show you what I mean here. Uh, I'll, I'll try not to butcher this story too much because I just read it the other day, but uh, if, you are, if you have a big, a, a big oak tree that drops, drops an acorn and then you have a small oak tree coming up, so that small oak tree is in its mother's shade. It's not getting a lot of sunlight, so it's going to grow very, very slowly because its mother is robbing all the sunlight. The fact that it's growing slow makes its wood really, really hard and dense which is a good thing. It grows very strong. Now in a different scenario, if the mother was not there, if you just took an acorn and planted it out in the middle of the field, a tree would grow, but it's getting all the sunlight. There's no mother blocking the sunlight. So it grows very, very fast. And because it grows fast, it's not very dense. It's a very soft, mushy tree because it, it grew so fast. And because it's soft and mushy, it is much more susceptible to rot and fungus. So here i like... As soon as i read that i thought perfect here's the thing if you try to grow too fast if you're greedy with your growth it doesn't work if you want to be a big strong oak tree it's a slow process it's going to take a while you got to grow big you have to grow strong it's going to take a while like that applies to so many other things including investing the people who want to grow their money really quickly and greedy with it they're going to end up rotting they're susceptible to fungus and rot so to speak whereas the people who are going about it slow and just saying like, look, I know this is a 20 year endeavor and I, I'm not in any rush. Those are the people that build a big, strong base that do well over the time. So look, the story about trees has nothing to do with investing. But if you th- if you're always thinking through the lens of like, how does these things tie together? You'll see things mm-hmm. like that once in a while.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. Like it's just... There's so many ideas you can get through so many different areas. And I think sometimes when we're trying to learn about money, we really silo ourselves off into, I can only read books about finance and uh, we forget about the rest of the world out there that can really tie together. And
2: so much of this is that you know there's only like a dozen finance topics that are even worth talking about. So yeah. after you've read those, it's like how many other books are you going to read about how GDP works? It's just there's not a lot. Like you you, you check all the boxes pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, so that's when it just makes it interesting to read about other stories that have to do with with those same
1: topics. Mm, absolutely. Now in your book, you say that doing well with money has little to do with how smart you are and a lot to do with how you behave. So what are some of the most important behaviors that we should work on to improve our odds of financial success? I think like one one of the biggest ones that applies to the most people is just being introspective
2: about who you are and what your risk tolerance is and what you want out of money, what you want out of life. And the important takeaway is that it is different for everyone. How I think about money for my my family, our personal money, is different from what you do, from from what both of you do, and from what every listener, everyone is different. And I think we've been kind of trained to think that money is math and two plus two equals four for me and you and everyone else. It's all the same answer. And it's not, that's what we've been trained, but it's not how it works. My goals are different from your goals. Like not, not dramatically different probably, but we're different people. We've had different backgrounds. We have different families, different, like everything's different. So I think if you realize that you have to be introspective and to say, what do I want? What is my risk tolerance? And look, the way that I invest might be different from the way that both of you invest and that's okay it doesn't mean we disagree with each other it doesn't mean that one of us is smarter than another it just means we have different lives and that's fine this is i think especially true for something like this i grew up in the united states i live in the united states you are in australia Uh, we have had different views of how the world works how the economy works Australia of course went almost 30 years I think without a recession during which time the United States had two massive recessions that completely changed our society or compare that to to if you were growing up in Germany in the 1940s. Completely different view in terms of how the world works. If you are a boomer in the United States, you kind of came of age in the 1970s when inflation was off the charts. whereas my generation has really never experienced inflation. So we're going to come to different views, about risk and opportunity just because of what we've seen in the world. So when you embrace that everyone is different, then it makes it easier for you to say, this is what I'm going to do. Even if my friends or my financial advisor do something different, like that's them. It doesn't mean we're wrong, but this is what works for me. So there are things that I do with my personal money that might not make sense to you. That if I explain them to people, people would say, that doesn't seem rational. That doesn't seem right. And it's like, well, th- that's what I want to do. I've thought this through. Mm-hmm. This is what works for us, for my wife and our children. And that's what we do. And that's fine. Everyone's different. And
0: we should just embrace that. I think yeah. one of the things that I took away from that discussion in the book Morgan, was the difference between being reasonable and being rational. I think you're the first person that I've heard put it in those terms. And that, was for me, was quite profound. Just being reasonable with money, it's just so much more comforting.
2: It's the best that you can do. Rather than pretending, which is the right word, rather than pretending that we can just look at the formula and the formula gives us an answer, and it's the same answer for everyone we should just like, that's being quote unquote rational. And I just think that just doesn't work for most people. We should just embrace that. If we can be reasonable with our money, that's fine. Let me give you one example. Again, a good example, because we're from different countries. There's a well-documented home bias in investing where people in the United States only own American stocks. People in Australia only own Australian stocks. People in Germany only own German stocks. You own the stocks of your homeland. That is not rational at all. It is not rational to think that the best companies are the ones that happen to be located nearest your house. There's that's ridiculous. There's no, but it's actually a very reasonable thing to do because if owning companies that you are familiar with because they're in your home country, if that makes it easier for you to take the leap of faith to invest your life savings in companies, and it's going to make you more comfortable, more likely to stick with those companies over time because you're familiar with them. And you're familiar with them because you drive past them every day. That's actually a very reasonable thing to do. So that's an example of a home bias is document whenever you read an academic study on home bias, it's framed as this is a bias. It's not rational. Investors shouldn't do this. And I think, no, it's a perfectly fine thing to do, even mm-hmm. if it's not rational. I totally support people who have the home bias if it makes it more comfortable for you to be an investor.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So Sir- I know in your book, you talk a lot about making better financial decisions, and I've been reading Annie Duke's book recently, How to Decide, which was really sort of added onto the the book I read. And we justify our financial decisions based on a whole range of factors and where we live, how we grow up, our life experiences, how our parents viewed money. So how can we think a bit more deeply about the decisions we're making and what's shaping them? And are there any particular strategies we can actually use to examine our financial decisions a little bit more deeply?
2: I love this idea from Daniel Kahneman that he's to go Kahneman is a psychologist who won the Nobel prize in economics. And he said years ago that a really important trait for becoming a good investor is having a well calibrated sense of your future regret. Like how much are you going to regret in the future? And I think that is almost like the foundation of every decision that we make. I'm making this decision. I could do X. I could do Y. What happens if I'm wrong? How much am I going to regret that, and that's going to be a big, a big thing for me. Let me show you how that like works for me personally. My personality—I really don't have any desire to be the world's greatest investor. It's not—it's it's not that I, I don't—I would not like that. It's just for my person, like this is not what I, I want to sit around and read and hang out with my friends and write some books, and that's—that's that's all I want. So my investing is fairly passive, just because I don't have the desire to go out and do that. But I know with pretty good certainty, just in my personality, that I'm not going to regret that that I'm not going to look back in 30 years and say, why didn't I own more Tesla stock? I could have been so much. I just don't have that sense of regret. Other people do though. And that's fine. I'm not saying one is better than the other. It's just different personalities. So I think if you understand your future regret of how much you're going to be looking back, whether it is a year from now or when you're on your deathbed and say, I I, I, sh- I should have done this. I think if you have a good calibrated sense of that and it's different for everyone, mm-hmm. that to me is the foundation of, of a good decision. I would say a lot of investors... I, do, I think don't put that much thought into that. And this is kind of why the boom bust cycle happens. You have investors at the top of the market who say, I have a big risk tolerance. I love risk. Let's put all of my money in the stock market. Let's lever up lots of margin. Like, let's go doing this. Because they don't understand their sense of regret that when the market falls 30%, they're going to they're realize that they regretted doing that. And then they're going to bail out at the wrong time. They're going to get flushed out at the bottom. And that process happens again and again and again. The reason that process happens is because at specific moments in time in the future, people misunderstood or did not think about their sense of regret about the future. So I think if you kind of obsess about that, what am I going to regret? And this, this again, to just to think about multidisciplinary learning, I think it's the same thing for relationships with your friends, with your family. When you treat people the way you treat them, you know what consequences is that going to have, and are you going to regret those consequences? Like it's it's all the same thing. It's all just. Mm you could go this way or that way. And how are you going to feel if you sh- if you realize you should have gone the other way in the future? I think that's that's how I think about most decisions for investing and in a lot of other
0: things. The regret minimization framework is so powerful. And you probably need to step outside yourself in your day-to-day to actually think uh, deeply about that, Morgan. The, I can't remember who said it, but you know we, we overestimate what we can achieve in one year and underestimate what we can achieve in five. And I think yep. that's such a, a useful framework and, and tool to augment you know, that regret minimization framework and and kind of hone it in on, you know, what actually is important and how long, you know, is that going to be important to me for? And really just drill into that a bit more.
2: Yeah. It's uh, uh, well, one part of this too, that, that I write about in the book is that people change over time. You know, if what, the way that you view the world in your twenties is probably not going to be the way that you view it in your thirties. And it's almost certainly not going to be the way that you view the world and your goals and your expectations in your sixties or seventies, everyone changes over time. And there's a lot of documentation in psychology about what's called the end of history, uh, the, the, the end of history bias. Uh, Which is this idea that everyone, when they look back at their lives, when they look backwards, you realize how much you've changed. Owen, Kate, Morgan—we're different people than we were ten years ago. I had different values, I had different beliefs than I do today than I did ten years ago. Hmm. But everyone underestimates how much I'm going to change in the future. So if you were to ask me, Morgan, who am I going to be in ten years? I would tell you, and I will tell you, I'm probably going to be roughly the same person. But I'm not. I know. I know I'm not going to be because of how much I changed in the last ten years. So we always underestimate who we're going to be in the future. And I think this is important for financial decisions too, to realize that the decisions you're making right now with, you know, what is your savings rate? How much do you spend? How much do you save? How do you invest? You might regret some of those. We're not necessarily regret, but you might have different views in the future and that's okay. And to me, the point that I made in the book was to how important it is to avoid the extreme ends of financial planning. People who either have this YOLO side on one end of like I'm just going to go spend all of my money and like screw like I'm just you only live once let's just go out and do it. Uh, that's something that you will. There's a good chance you'll end up regretting once you get into your 60s and you realize you save nothing for retirement because you spent it all in your 20s. You might regret that behavior. And then there's this other end too. Whereas if you are an extreme saver, kind of the fire movement, and you say I'm going to save 90% of my income. Well, maybe, you know, that feels great at one point in your life, but what if you were to have a debilitating injury and all of a sudden you were bedridden or had a terminal illness and you look back and you said, I could have spent all that money traveling to Europe and going all these places and having fun. Like the extreme ends of financial planning Mm -hmm. are, I think, what you should avoid when you acknowledge that whatever you think about life in the world today is almost certainly
0: going to change at some point in your life. Mm. speaking you brought up fire there there's a quote in the book and I'll insert financial and you say independence means doing the work you want at the times you want and I think you repeat that in a few different ways throughout the book you use a story or anecdote there. I think it's your parents Morgan is that correct to describe what independence means it to you can you try to just maybe give us a brief overview of that I'm sure all of our listeners will go and read the book so I don't give away all the secret sauce Yeah, so I'll I'll
2: explain a little bit that's in the book and parts that aren't in there that I, uh, in hindsight, I kind of wish I'd added in. Mm -hmm. So I write in the book that my my father had a really interesting background. He started college, his undergraduate university, when he was thirty and had three kids, and he became a medical doctor in his mid Mm forties when my brother, who's the oldest, was in high school. So that was like when his career began when he had grown kids. So he it was a really interesting uh, path for them because when my school, we were broke. We had no money. He was a student. We were living off of student grants. And it was like, we barely had enough money for rent and food. We were happy kids. My parents were wonderful parents, but we just we just didn't have any money. And then my father became a doctor and earned the comfortable salary of a doctor. So things like it was a big change. And myself and my two siblings were old enough to realize the change. And what was interesting is that the frugality that was required of my parents when they were in school stuck with them, even when my parents were earning a decent living. Like they were, we were very, they saved a big part of their money. Uh, We lived in a decent house, but like like we, we, we could have spent so much more money than they did. My parents had a very high savings rate. And when I was, let's say a teenager, I kind of looked down upon them for that. Not looked down, but I didn't get it. Why don't you go out and buy a Porsche? I know you can afford it. Why are you driving this clunker? I didn't. I didn't get it, and I, I just couldn't really understand it. And then my my dad, about uh, I don't know, five years ago, I guess, um, got kind of burnt out of the ER. The you know, it's a very, it's a stressful job with people literally dying in your hands in the ER. And he realized that after twenty some odd years, he had had enough, and he just quit. He just retired. And I think that was the moment when that's why you were saving money so that you, yeah. whenever you got, you were just sick of what you were doing. You said, okay, I'm done. And it was also really interesting because a lot of his colleagues, his coworkers who are the same age, wanted to retire. They were burnt out as well, but they couldn't. They had to keep working, they had to keep saving for retirement. They couldn't afford to retire yet because they had spent so much more money than my dad. So it was interesting for me that when I was a teenager, I looked down upon my parents for not spending more money. And then when I saw, oh, actually, now I realize why you were saving it so that you can control your time. So that the very day that you woke up and said, I don't want to work anymore, you stopped working. That was it. And so, I think having that level of independence uh, and control over your time, and being able to work when you want, for as long as you want, and stop work whenever you want on your own terms, is so important. Mm-hmm. Life satisfaction. So that was a big. That, that was a kind of a profound moment for me, just watching my parents go through that cycle.
1: Yeah, and it sounds like they knew exactly what was enough for them. And I, you talk a lot about in the book about knowing what your goalposts are and what are some of the ways that we can stop our goalposts moving when it comes to our finances? Because I see so many people around me that the goal just keeps growing and growing and growing. So they're never actually happy because they, they can't work out when is enough for them.
2: I mean, once gets a lot into like circles and social signaling and, what, and whatnot, but I think there is a general observation. This is not black and white. It's kind of, it's a, it's kind of a nuanced thing, but no one is as impressed with your possessions as you are. That's the big insight for me. A lot of people have a goal of, oh, I want the fancy car. I want the fancy house. I want the fancy jewelry. And a lot of times it's because they think that people will admire them for those things. If I have this car, people will think I'm cool. If I have this big house, people will think I'm important. And I think we so overestimate those views from other people that no one is as impressed with your car as you are. And when when you're driving down the street in your fancy car, people are probably not gawking at you. What they're actually doing when people see you driving your nice car is they're thinking, if I had that car, people would think I'm cool as well. But no one actually cares about the person driving the car. Mm. Everyone is just thinking about themselves the people who are looking at your nice car are thinking about themselves. People who are looking at your big house are thinking, are imagining themselves owning that house. I think when you wrap your head around just how that social signaling works, it makes the desire to keep moving the goalposts of social status a little bit less. Not a hundred percent. It's it's a natural thing. I'm susceptible to it as anyone else, but I think if you can kind of push yourself in that direction, that uh, just just realizing that the money is for you to like to control your own time and live your own life. And the signaling that you think the benefit from the signal that you think you're going to get is much less than you imagine makes it a little bit easier, but it's a different thing. I think we're all susceptible to this in different degrees. It's a really tough thing to get around. And also like, I never, I would never advocate living like a monk for people. Like there's a lot of great things to buy. I love nice cars. I like nice house. I'd like live a great life. Just realize that the benefits that you get socially are probably less than you imagine.
0: This is concept um i know it's um, doing the rounds here in australia in the fire community it's you know around about lifestyle inflation you know you get that that pay rise and then you put more money to doing things and going and buying things and material objects i think you mentioned in the book there that you know pay increases for you personally actually went to more savings uh, because that's what was important to you that independence and having that control and that choice later in life or even now
2: yeah I mean, I write in the book that there's a chapter at the end called Confessions, where I kind mm. of lay out my my personal right. financial situation. I don't I don't give any numbers, but I try to be as open as I can. This is my wife and I in my financial lives for you. Mm. And I, I wrote in there that I think what I'm most proudest of of my wife that my wife and I have done is the goalpost hasn't moved that much. It's it has moved. I'm not saying it's been perfect, but not that much. And the way that we live today is not dramatically different. Than when my wife and I graduated college. We have a bigger house because we have two kids now, but our our day-to-day spending has not changed that much because and and we're not suppressing ourselves. I just feel like we don't desire that much. And that I'm proud of because any races that we have gotten in the during our careers have gone to savings in a way that has let us control our times to, to a greater degree than we would have 10 years ago. In a way, and that makes me really happy. The fact that I can work on the projects that I want to and, and, and whatnot is, is like that degree of, of independence is our pretty much our own, our only, our sole financial goal that we spend all of our time thinking about. So it's been, uh, you know, there's obviously there's difficult parts and there's temptations left and right for everyone, including us, but that's been a really important kind of North star for us when we're thinking about our own finances.
1: So I I know in your book, you talk about the kids don't want your money. They want what your money or what your money buys. They want really time with you. And what are some of the ways that we can educate our children to have healthier relationships with money into the future?
2: I mean, I, I love like, so we do, so our son is five years old and we started, uh, I don't know, maybe a year ago saying, okay, on the first of a month, we're going to give you your allowance. You get X dollars and you can get pretty much whatever you want within reason. Mm -hmm. So we started doing that. And then we, we also told him, Hey, I try to explain to him, if you save your allowance this month, then next month, you can combine it with next month's allowance and get an even bigger. Th- and he just immediately is like, no, 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 like no. <laughs> we're, we're, we're going to the toy store right now. We're <laughs> going to spend this. So I've been trying to put forth the idea of savings and that savings can get you a bigger toy in the future if you save your allowance. And it's not, it's not, it's not really clicking quite yet. hopefully it will, will in the future, but this is something that I spend a lot of time as well. Like our oldest child is five and we have a one-year-old daughter. So we're still, I'm still not in the, in the zone of, of being able to teach them the big life lessons around money. I think that'll come, you know, five Mm -hmm. or 10 years from now, but it's interesting to watch, to watch it as well. Uh, Just to watch how my son thinks about money. Um, He, he mentioned the other day, I mean, this is just like a funny five-year-old kid thing. He, he mentioned that he wanted to buy something and I said, well, where are you going to get that money? And he said, from the bank. And I said, well, where, where did the bank get the money? And he said, banks just have money. You just go in and get it. <laughs> like like the, the idea of money to a small child is so foreign and like the, the baseline that they start with mm. that it's, it's interesting. But I like, I, I don't know if I have good advice for how to teach an older kid or a teenager much about money. Cause I haven't, I haven't experienced that yet. And I, I, I do kind of worry a little bit that, we'll get it wrong. I think every parent worries that they're going to, they're mm. going to get all kinds of parents and parenting things wrong. And I, I don't know if my wife and I have a good strategy yet for what we're going to do with our kids, teaching them about money things like allowance and whatnot. I don't know if we have a good strategy, uh, so far. I think a lot of that too, is that every child is different. I have, I have an older brother and an older sister. The three of us are so different, so different financially, uh, just in terms of how we think about money, like what we've chosen to do with our careers, totally, totally different even though we had the exact same upbringing through the same parents. So everyone is different in a way that I don't think that I know how I'm going to teach my son or daughter about money when they're teenagers. Cause I don't know who they're going to be yet. Like we're all, we're all going to be different.
1: Mm. And I think some of the lessons that your parents teach you can take a long time to kick in. I remember my parents tried really hard to teach me about saving money in high school and putting away some some of the money I got from my part-time job. And then when I got a full-time job at 17, I just spent every single dollar I earned. And uh, there was no savings in sight for at least 12 months. And they they were like trying to give me some leash, but I I know they were kind of worried that I was just going to be like that for the rest of my life. But then something sort of clicked along the way and I realized, oh, I actually don't want to spend every single dollar I earn. I might like some money in the future. So I think it it did take a couple of years after high school to actually sink in of those lessons they taught me while growing up. And that's actually a really good point that you experienced
2: that. You experienced blowing all the money that you had and then not having much. I think that's really good. When my son was born five years ago, I wrote him a letter about finance. It's written on The Molly Fool. It's called Financial Advice for My New Son. And one of the things I wrote in there was, I hope you're poor one day not miserable and not, not suffering, but I hope you experience the power of a dollar through its scarcity. I think the only real the only way that you can learn how powerful a dollar is, is to feel its scarcity. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's important for kids, teenagers, young teenagers to have that feeling of realizing like you had money and you blew it, you have none left and you regret that now, don't you? Like that's Mm -hmm. an important lesson to learn. So I think, uh, you know, teaching kids through their own experiences and having them fall down and and skim their knees, so to speak, and learn that themselves is a really good thing versus, you know, so this is where I I don't know if I have advice because I don't know how I'm going to do this with my own children, like versus saying, I'm going to help you save. And you're always going to have a big savings account versus saying like, oh, here's your money. If you want to go blow it, like go learn that lesson yourself. Same with investing. If you want to go trade penny stocks, Go learn that lesson about risk yourself. That's actually a good lesson to learn firsthand versus me explaining it to you. So, that like that nurturing versus letting people fall down thing is, uh, is interesting too. On a, on a similar uh, but very unrelated note, I took my son skiing for the first time last week and I pretty much held him the entire time. I he he, uh, held him between my knees with ski down and I never let him fall. I held him the whole time. And I, I think that was a mistake. I think I should have let him fall so that he realized like, oh, this is how you balance versus having me as the pure safety net the whole time. Very similar with money.
1: Mm.
0: Another great anecdote from a different discipline or (laughs) totally different environment. Morgan, uh, as we come to the back of the conversation, one question that I have and I've thought about as I followed you over the years is, did you think that you would be in the position you are today talking about money to two people in Australia or people in Europe touring the world talking about money and investing? When you were a teenager or when you were a young adult? No, like zero.
2: I I definitely, I I had an interesting uh, teenage years and I didn't go to to a normal high school. I did kind of an independence program that let me ski. I I was a ski racer in Lake Tahoe. So I did this independent high school program where I did nothing. Like it required nothing of me. And I basically didn't have any high school education at all. When I was 16 years old, I got a piece of paper that said diploma on it, but like I did nothing for it. I basically bypassed high school. And because of that, during my teenage years, I had no thought whatsoever about what am I going to do for my career? Because it just just wasn't on my mind at all. My parents didn't push it in the slightest. They kind of said like, whatever you want to do, like, just go do it. Um, So I didn't start college until I was in my early 20s. And even then, I I think, I think start around that time. I realized I'm interested in finance. I I didn't really know like the stock market. That sounds cool. I don't know anything about it, but that seems intriguing to me. And I saw that people were making a lot of money doing it. People on wall street seem to make a lot. It's like, Oh, maybe that's, that's a place. But I didn't really know what it was or that I wanted to do it. And as I started getting a little bit more serious about it in college, my plan was I'm going to do investment banking. I'm going to be an investment banker. That's what I'm going to do. That was the whole plan. And then that kind of fell apart. I had an investment banking internship that I realized actually hated the industry. Like it just wasn't for me. And then I got a job in private equity. And then I thought, I love private equity. That was a good job. It was a good mix between business and investing, like the good combination between the two that I loved. But then I fell into writing by complete accident. Um, Hmm. It was not part of the plan at all. Um, And I had a friend who was a writer for The Motley Fool uh, at the time. And he said, hey, you're looking for a finance job. Why don't you go apply to The Motley Fool to become a finance writer? And like, I I had no interest in writing. I had no background in writing. Um, Didn't want to do it. And at the time, I think I would probably look down on it versus becoming a private equity CEO or, or being a financial journalist, in my mind, like I'm kind of ashamed to say this, but at the time, mine, those sat on very different kind of more like, like one was way above the other in my mind. Mm. So I started a writer, I started becoming a writer with the idea that I'll do it for six months or something, and then I'll find another job at a hedge fund, but I just fell in love with it and really loved the process of it. And I think it it's the day-to-day part of it suits my personality of, I just want to read about a bunch of different topics and see if I can learn something and then share it with other people. I don't have the type A personality that I think was, is necessary. for Someone in private equity or investment banking or a hedge fund. I'm much more just like, let's take it slow and kind of meander through this topic and see where it takes us. So I think like that would drive some people crazy and their job would drive me crazy, but this works perfect for me. So it was not part of the plan in the slightest. It just kind of happened on accident.
0: Mm. So two little questions I got in the end. I listened to the audiobook. Fantastic. And we will of course put links in the show notes. How did you choose who did the the voice?
2: So the voice of the audio for uh, the the audio book is Chris Hill, who's the Molly Fool's podcast and radio host. Chris is a, a good personal friend of mine for years. He's he's wonderful. Uh, since he's a radio host, he has a much better voice than I do. He's a better reader than I do. That's what he does for a living. I write words for a living. He speaks words for a living. So <laughs> let's like separation of labor, let's let's do it that way. So when he reached out to me uh, before I started writing the book and said he was interested in it, I said, perfect, done. That's That's mm-hmm. great. And it's also, here's what's actually great about it too. There are parts in any book that the audio reader, uh the the, the 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 narrator has to take liberties to change. If there's a chart you can't read the chart you just have to make up words to explain it. So I was mm. really nervous about this of like who am I going to trust to just make up parts of my book? Mm. And like write it themselves. It's like, I don't know, but I have, I had 100% trust in Chris. So when I handed Chris the manuscript, I said, any parts you want to change, I trust that you can do it right. Just go. <laughs> it's like, it was, good, it was a good partnership between us just because I think there was a level of trust.
0: Anyone that's listened to Motley Fool Radio or just followed the Motley Fool for years or not even that long at all would probably be familiar with Chris's voice. And I've got to say, perfect choice. Perfect choice.
2: It's great. When he, when he told me he wanted to do it, I didn't have to think for one second whether the answer was, it was like, yes, of course. I'd
0: love for you to do it. That's
2: great. Perfect.
0: <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. It's um, so I, I listened to it while I was out in the garden. And then I've obviously got the physical copy of the book here too. Morgan, will put a link in the show notes. You did say something and I don't know if you, if I, if I'm okay to bring this up, but you did say books, you said you earlier on the conversation, you said, I want to write books, plural. <laughs>
2: Oh, there's, there, there's definitely a, there's definitely a book too. I haven't, it's not, it's not, it's not public yet, but I've I've talked about it a little bit here and there. Uh, it's sold to a publisher. I, I, full disclosure, I haven't written a single word of it yet. <laughs> the second book here, here, here's, here's a little tease. And since I haven't written a word of it, like I'm still, I'm still working on this. This is why I'm just going to give you a little bit of tease. Okay. Uh, the psychology of money is about the psychology of money. Book number two is going to be about the psychology of lots of other stuff. The kind of idea is, what are, what are 20 behaviors across history that never change? What are just a fundamental part of human behavior, particularly in business and economics, that never change? Because look, technology is always changing. The economy is always changing. Stock markets are always changing. What never changes? What are the behaviors that are just enduring fundamental parts of who we are as humans that we can put a lot of confidence in that those behaviors will also be part of our future? That's kind of the idea for book number two that
0: I'll be working on this year.
1: Sounds really interesting.
0: I think I saw you share something on Twitter about some rights for maybe making this into something on screen.
2: Yeah, that's right. The the psychology money is going to be turned into a documentary. Uh, that's that's a long project. I don't know if people will be able to watch that for another two years. Who knows? Like, that's, that's not something
0: that comes together overnight, but it's going to be on film. Yeah. Wow. Congratulations. Thanks. That's fantastic. Kate, do you have any final closing remarks or questions for Morgan?
1: Oh, I think it's been a fantastic conversation. I hope uh, if listeners haven't already read or listened to the book, uh, they do that. And we'll definitely include all of that in the show notes below. Mm
0: -hmm. Absolutely. Morgan Housel, thank you for taking the time to join Kate and I on the Australian Finance Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. This has been fun.
1: Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast, where our mission is to improve the financial futures of all Australians.
0: To join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Raskinvest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.